And at the bottom of the pond is Iron John. Hi, this is Sierra Iveson. And I'm Kevin Merritt, and we are the host of Muse, a brand new musical theater podcast where we explore the storylines, songs, characters, and themes of your favorite shows. Well, not exactly. You've probably never heard of these shows. They're brand new and still in development. But we are betting they're about to become your favorites. We are digging deep by going straight to the source, the writers. Plus, each episode will have exclusive live-in-the-studio performances, impromptu table readings of the script, and whatever else comes up. We plan to give you an in-depth look at the process of developing a new musical by allowing you to peek behind the curtain to see and hear why these stories need to be told. The Muse is brought to you as a collaboration between the National Alliance for Musical Theater and One Foot Productions. The Muse podcast may contain adult language and themes. Keep that in mind when listening. So let's get started. Today, we are so excited to welcome Jacinth Graywood and Rebecca Hart. Hello. Uh, and their musical, Iron John. Tell me about you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Tell um, me what your roles are in the show. Got it. Um, I did, I being Jacinth Graywood, did music along with book with Rebecca. And I wrote a uh, book and lyrics. Wonderful. So we're going to dive in, but what do we need to know before we start to hear some music today? Um, I'm going to try our the blurby thing that we always say. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> Iron Dawn, an American Ghost Story is the full title of the musical, and it's um, a Southern Gothic ghost story riff on a German folktale called Iron Haunts that's better known over there than it is over here about a quote-unquote wild man who lives at the bottom of the pond in the woods and the little prince who discovers and befriends him. Um, and we have made a version of the story that goes that off-roads quite a bit um, but is set in a fictional town in Alabama over a period of 100 years between 1915 and 2015. I already have like a thousand questions. But I'm not, I'm not going to let you go. don't ask yes. any of them. Not yet. Not yet. We, we, we don't like to get bogged down in talking before we hear some music. So. Okay, cool. And oh, who else is in the room with us? Oh, we also have Mark Evans on piano. He's a wonderful music director who actually played one of the first productions of Iron John. Oh, thanks, Mark. All right, let's get into it. In the dark. Sugar daughters, bagus hailing long. Is good day to morning slow. Lights have come up on a forest clearing at the edge of a large body of water. Moonlight, willow trees. To one side, a high ledge over the water, cicadas. The quiet sound of water, a hot summer night. In the background, a mansion is visible on the opposite shore. The chorus addresses us directly. Whitaker Quarry, Good, Alabama, 1915. Firelight, noises getting louder, running feet, dogs barking. A man appears running for his life. He's being pursued. He realizes all ways are blocked. He climbs up on the ledge. A woman appears on the opposite shore. She is also running from pursuit. Her clothes are torn. She sees the man on the ledge about to jump. Her attackers catch up to her and seize her as the man jumps from the ledge. She's dragged away and screams, John! Blackout. Splash. The chorus addresses us in a pool of light. Mm -hmm. 
what you throw in the water gonna rise again what you gonna do then what you shoot away gonna come back in come back in again times ten And what you bury in the dirt at the edge of town will just take root and grow where it went down. Nothing ever goes away. No such thing as thin air. Nothing ever goes nowhere. Everything that's done will stay all around you in the air. Nothing ever goes nowhere. What you throw in the water gonna rise again. Gonna rise. What you gonna do? Whitaker Quarry, Good, Alabama, 2015. 2015. <laughs> the same forest clearing a hundred years later. 17-year-old Lucas Harper Barnes surfaces from the pond where he's been swimming. He hears two voices approaching from off stage. Iron John, Iron John, went to bed with steel boots on. Woke up in the morning, he was dead and gone. And that's how he come to be, don't say it. All right. All right. Oh. <laughs> Let's stop for a second. I've got... 100 questions, but let's start with where are we right where we stopped? Right where we stopped, um, we are in 2015 um, in the forest clearing by the pond in uh, which in this place called Whitaker Quarry in the town of Good, Good Alabama. Alabama. Great. And do we get to know anything yet about what we heard in the prologue? Beyond what you just heard? Nope. All right. You don't know who those people are. Do you, we know that's that's the past? Um, yeah, yes, because that. the chorus starts the play yeah. by saying, this is Whitaker Quarry, Good Alabama, 1915. Then we just know that some bad Something stuff happened, happened to yeah. two yeah. people. Um, one of the, a man who was black and a woman who was white. We and hear one of them's named John. One of them is named John. John. Mm -hmm. All right, all right. I'm feeling like in a good sleuthing position to yeah. continue. Yeah. So in present day, can I know who just spoke? So that was Hunter and Julie, um, the ones singing the Iron John chant. Hunter Great. is a 17-year-old um, white boy in Alabama, along <laughs> with his friend slash ex, Julie, um, Julie Whitaker. Complicated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just a little bit. And uh, Hunter and Lucas are very good friends. Um, Lucas is uh, almost 18, um, mixed race, and... Julie and Hunter are both white kids. Julie is a very wealthy, from a very wealthy family, the Whitaker family, whose mansion that is on, up, across the pond. Um, up until recently, she's been in a very fancy boarding school, got kicked out, we don't really know why yet, um, and is back home. Um, and Hunter thinks that she's back home and she's going to be his woman. <laughs> okay, so, so Hunter and Lucas' best friends, mm -hmm. Julie, Hunter, ex's friends. Mm -hmm. And together, they're sort of a, a trio. Or they're about to be. They're okay. About to be, yes. This is the moment Spoilers. where they all meet each other. Great. So all right. In this scene, do you want, should we Yeah, let's tell do you it. Yeah, let's keep going. So this scene, um, 
in a very like uh, horror movie trope kind of way, Hunter and Julie Hunter is taking Julie down to Murder Pond, which is the colloquial local term for Whitaker Quarry. Sounds romantic. Exactly. <laughs> to both romance her and scare the pants off her, you right. know. And Literally. the chant exactly. And so the chant that they just did, Iron John, Iron John went to bed with steel boots on is like a thing that they've known since they were kids because there's an urban legend about um Iron John who lives in the water and if you say his name three times his arm will come out of the water and grab you um, and in this scene Hunter's trying to scare Julie with that idea but he says hey did you know that Iron John was actually a real guy he was the baddest bad guy that ever lived lived in these parts some hundred years ago and um, the men of the town he was like a thief and a, a troubled character and the men of the town tried to, to get him and uh, he got away from them by jumping off this high ledge into the water. Oh. And so some people say he drowned and some people say he's still down there waiting to get his revenge. But either way, uh. if you say his name three times, his big arm will come out of the water and yeah. get you. So Hunter says, do you dare me to say it? And he says it twice. And on the third time, Lucas, who's been waiting there to play a joke on them, sticks his hand out of the water and scares them both. Oh, got great. It. And Lucas and Hunter are friends from yeah. high school or something like that. Yeah, they've been okay. going to school um, together for quite a while. Um, this year, Lucas got into kind of a fancy private school, so he and Julie are going to be classmates, and got Hunter it. is left by but, himself. But Lucas and Julie don't know each other at this point. No, they do not. They meet in the scene, and there's a bit of a like, bit of a spark between them that Hunter notices and is not super psyched about. Great. Um, and Can't understand why. Then... Which is a good segue, because after Julie and Lucas meet, uh, Julie jazzed up and energized with this new relationship is like, cool, I am going to go say the name. So she climbs up the high ledge and she's like, do you dare me to say uh, this name? And let's read the end of that scene. Yeah. Where do we start from? Uh, were you under the water that whole time? Right. And I'm Sierra. I'm going to hop in and read Julie. Great. Thank you. Um, and, and can you do Hunter, Kevin? Oh, sure. Uh, in this scene, yes. Great. Were you under that water the whole time? Nah, there's like these old stone steps. Cool. She runs off to investigate. Jules, I think. Y'all, I think there's like part of a house up here. She emerges on the high ledge above them. Julie, let's go. Why, you scared? Do you dare me to say it? She's standing at the edge. Come on. Iron John, Iron John, Iron John! What was that? Whoa. Julie's head turns slightly in the direction of the sound. She gasps, seeing something. She takes a step forward, a sound as of a hammer striking steel. Once, twice. Julie! Third hammer strike, Julie falls off the ledge. Oh, shit. She hits the water. The boys look at each other and dive in, just as sirens, static, and lights. The kids emerge into the flashlight beams. Hunter behind Lucas, Lucas holding Julie. All right, come on out of there. Hands up. Hey, uh, officer, we were just... And Lucas puts his hands up. And that's how that scene ends. Ah, Julie getting everybody into trouble. <laughs> She's just back to, to cause trouble. Yep. Yeah. I think the, the thing to flag about the ending of that scene is like, yes, like girl falls off ledge, boys dive in to save her, everybody comes up just as the cops show up to be like, hey, kids, you're not supposed to be here. But um, look at the three of them and assume that the non-white kid is the one who's causing the trouble and arrest Lucas. Okay. Um, and that and is so the end of that scene. Julie and Hunter are not arrested. They are not. They, they actually not. arrest Lucas? They do. Yeah, I mean, this is always like, I don't want to create a like, and that's what this play is about, Lucas's mm -hmm. arrest. Sure. <laughs> because it's, as you'll see, it's like a... Um, it's belt. It's a small moment in their lives that like gets diverted 
um, that gets taken care of later. Okay. Um, okay. And but so it the, does sort of set things in motion. And so I think also the thing to flag as well, along with the rest, is that this is the moment that kind of unleashes the haunting for everybody. Ooh. Okay. Mm. So as we move further into the story, right now we're we're going into gone people. Yes. What do we need to know? It's a direct transition from where you see Lucas putting his hands up, and then we go to the kitchen of the home of Myrtle Barnes. Who is um, who is white and who is Lucas's mother, and who it's about 1 a.m., and she's sitting at the, the kitchen table. She's gotten the call saying this thing happened, but also that Lucas is on his way home, but she's agitated and she's worried about him. Just a plain old kitchen, except for the ancestor altar against one wall with photographs, deities, tarot cards, candles, and an ornate wooden box. Gone people, gone people, people long gone. Grandmothers, grandfathers, you passed on. Come in my kitchen, pull up a chair, throw out a bone and answer a prayer. I built you a temple alongside of this wall, so you would come when I call. She lights a candle on the altar. Gone people, gone people, gone before me. Looking down here with your 2020. If you was in my place, what would you do? Knowing now what you wish you knew. 17 years I've been raising my son. How have I done? Front door opens, Lucas comes in, followed by Ron Pate, a police officer in uniform. Myrtle springs up and throws her arm around Lucas. And, and during then this we have a scene. Yeah, and in this scene, um, we find out that Ron, who is Myrtle's boyfriend, was is a police officer, was down at the police station, saw Lucas, worked cleared everything out, up. cleared things up, brings Lucas home. Um, Myrtle begins to get on Lucas's case about being down at the Whitaker Quarry. And Lucas is trying to downplay it. Ron's trying to downplay it. Myrtle brings up the race issue. This makes Lucas kind of angry. He storms out thinking, nobody understands me. And um, he's out on the porch singing about um, his missing father, absentee father. He hears father. Ron bring up his absentee father, John Harper, as in, oh, Lucas is a good kid. He ain't his father. And Myrtle bristles, and they have an exchange about John Harper. Ron starts to press Myrtle to let him move in. Like, if I just lived here, everything would be safer and easier for Lucas. And you know, John Harper's not coming back, which is like not a cool thing to say to Myrtle or for Lucas. And Myrtle asks Ron to leave. The end of this song is the three of them in their separate spaces, upset and rattled and like Myrtle being like, I need some help from any from you spirits out there, my ancestors, anyone who'll help me. Lucas is like, what? where is my father? What is the deal? Why do people talk badly about him? And Ron is like, why is this guy who's not even here still in my way, preventing me from being with the woman that I love? And so, as she said, it ends with the three of them in separate spaces singing about gone people, and it sort of begins to conjure the gone people. Um, there's a big choral moment, which I think we'll actually play a demo of um, at the end of the show. And at the climax of this whole thing, um, 
Ron leaves, Lucas is on the porch, the bathroom door inside the house mysteriously swings open, and John Harper himself walks out of it. And he says, You gonna marry him? John? Well, I don't know. I guess I'd be needing that divorce first. I guess you would. He sits at the table with her. Lucas comes back in, crosses through the kitchen, passing John Harper without seeing him. He hugs his mother goodnight and exits, and Myrtle turns back to John. So what? You dead? No. Jesus. Just asking? No, I ain't dead. I do apologize. But you ain't here, neither. No, I ain't here. Guess I'm just on your mind. I guess you are. Well, I just came by to say two things. One, thank you for defending my good name just now. And two, if you really don't want my son to know me, you better hide the key. She looks up, caught off guard. Lights. Ooh. So we sort of have another triangle here. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Emotional one, perhaps. That is mirroring the teenagers. Yeah, so we triangle. have uh, Myrtle, who mm-hmm. is Lucas's mom, who is white. We have Ron, who is Hunter's dad, her boyfriend, who is white. That feels really yeah. like it's going to impact the younger triangle. <laughs> and we have the absent yeah. but present John Harper, who is black. Okay. And so there's a triangle there that um, we'll find out that these triangles are repeated and important. Okay. Did Ron, uh, well, maybe I'm asking something we don't know yet, but did Ron and, and John know each other? Wait. Uh, so, oh. um, I do have a questions about Myrtle. There's some th- interesting things about Myrtle, right? Mm-hmm. What does she do for a living? Or, uh, Myrtle is a fortune teller. Which uh, is illegal in Alabama, so yeah. she is a consultant, uh, she will tell you. Uh, and she, she'll tell it you that she, is she cuts still. hair. Yep. Wow. <laughs> she, she cuts hair. She cuts hair out of her, out of her, um, she quote cuts hair. her living room. But, mm-hmm. Okay, but yeah. she's a fortune teller. Yeah. Okay. And now she did not seem shocked when the spiritual presence of her husband appeared in her kitchen. Does that, mm-hmm. in fact, your stage direction I love says, huh. <laughs> um, so yeah, does this sort of thing surprised. happen for Myrtle? Um, I think Myrtle, Myrtle is psychic. She's a magical person. And so she like really, she is good at being a psychic. Not yes. much phases her. Yeah, she okay. is, she is okay. quite honestly psychic and right. rather magical. I don't think she has in the, in the, 10 or 15 years that John Harper has been gone. I don't think he's ever walked into the house before. Okay. We've had this conversation this a lot. Yeah. yeah. So I think what we've settled on is that such apparitions are not a new thing for mm-hmm. Myrtle, but that it's John Harper that just walks into her kitchen at this point. That's the, huh. That's the, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Cause okay. when we first see her, she's praying to her ancestors and being like gone people. I, I, I need some help. Appear, appear to me. Somebody, then, somebody show up and give me advice. And the, the one person who shows like, up who can give her advice. Oh, sure. It's the one that <laughs> yeah. she's like, really? Yeah. Oh, oh it's isn't you. that how life goes? <laughs> and so can we know I should how? should have been more clear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not you. Anyone but John. Um, so Lucas and uh, Hunter, are they like, is this like cool that their parents are dating? Or they're... Let's read their... We'll get to their... Well, all right, all right. I will say that they don't talk about it all that much. Sure. Yeah. As, as that might go. As teenage boys yeah. are like to not talk about this. Okay. So in the present day, we have two triangles mm-hmm. that are sort of interconnected and, and okay. Yes. That wasn't a full sentence, but in the, <laughs> to yes. try again for a full, full sentence. And yeah. There's two generations of love triangles happening in 2015. Yep. And so 
Um, what are we going into now? So, so here we are. Lucas is back home because mm-hmm. Ron's brought him back home. Myrtle's not happy. John appears. I think that's and only at. Myrtle sees John. Only Myrtle sees correct. John. Okay. That's correct. And then we fast forward to the next morning. Charming song. Um, which we'll you play, will not hear. We'll, we'll play a little bit of it for you. Um, it starts with this fun clap groove, if I can do it. Yeah, bright afternoon lights up on Julie Whitaker standing in Myrtle's driveway holding a bunch of little flowers. She sings a charming song about how she woke up that morning and just had to go visit Lucas on the, quote, wrong side of the pond. So Myrtle opens the door and says, can I help you? Yes, ma'am. I'm, uh, I'm looking for Lucas. Lucas Harper Barnes. This is his house, right? No. Oh, uh, well, do this you... This is my house. He lives here. I'm his mother. Oh, okay, I... I'm his mother, and you are? I'm his, um, uh, Julie. I'm Julie. Julie Whitaker. He's not here. Oh, okay, uh, well, I just came to say thank you for, for the other night, and, uh, I'm sorry for what happened. And these are for him. Julie holds out flowers. Where'd you get those? Oh, just that raggedy old patch of weeds end of the drive. My herb garden. Oh. Saves me the trouble. Julie hands over the flowers. Myrtle looks at them. You got a good eye, anyway. Balm of Gilead. Smart choice. Is it? Mm. I'll tell him you come by. Thank you. The door is closed. Hugh. And she runs off. Aunt Julie. <laughs> okay, so Julie has been, like, rejected by Lucas's mother. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gently, gently rejected. Gently pushed away. So uh, I get this sort of feeling that like not a lot of folks have come to Myrtle's door mm-hmm. or no. maybe g- girls, maybe rich white girls. She's overprotective. Yeah. She's right? overprotective. She's a bit of a recluse. Um, Lucas will say later that um, when he was a kid, he didn't have a lot of friends. They kind of kept to themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and it's also that oh, this is the girl that caused all the trouble down at the pond. Yeah. Uh, oh, right, right, right. <laughs> and we're getting to a place where like, it's also like, oh, now I have to deal with dating. Like, this is kind of a new thing. Like, girls are coming around. Oh, like, right. Because how old are, are the kids? Um, Lucas 17. is almost 18. Oh, okay. Um, but I think they moved around a bit for a while, and then I think he's he was kept a bit to himself when he was younger. Sure. He was, like, a little bit nerdy, and he was, like, a piano prodigy, and he, like, he, he just was, like, I feel like in Iron John, he's starting to be, like, oh, I'm cool, but I didn't know I was cool. Oh, you right. Know? Mm-hmm. And, um... So this this thing, especially for Myrtle, is new that like now I gotta deal with some girl coming around. Yeah, picking know? my picking my flowers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm it a weed. I love that. Cool. All right, great. So where to next? Um, we then transition to the clearing by the pond where Hunter and Lucas are playing horseshoes. And we have this scene, which will be read by I will read Lucas. Jason will read Lucas. So for this next bit, why we we have actually a real teenager read Hunter. Is that okay? Mm-hmm, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So reading Hunter and this is going to be Caden Merritt. There's no relation between me and Caden, mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. for he's related. <laughs> <laughs> Same afternoon, a little later. The clearing by the pond, Hunter and Lucas playing horseshoes. Yes! Damn, this shit is rigged. Yeah, these horseshoes are loaded. Rusty asshole things. We're going to get a tetanus. You don't get a tetanus. You get a tetanus shot. Yeah, you do. If you keep playing around in the garbage. Okay, Mom. How's she doing? Your mom. The other night, Dad said she came down kind of (sighs) hard. She about ready to install an electric fence. You want to go to that school this year? You stay out of trouble. Blah, blah, blah. Dude, whatever you got in. You're transferring. Done deal. Yeah, but they can yank the aid money if I... Come on. Myrtle's just being Myrtle. You're a private school kid now. 
You're gonna get into a private school kid college, get some private school kid job, marry a white picket fence. <laughs> They're gonna send you back to Hick High with the rest of us. You're good. I mean, your senior year's gonna suck ass without me, but otherwise. As long as I watch that criminal record. Criminal record? How we didn't do anything. I mean, hands up, you. What the fuck was that? Damn. Stand aside. Hey, how's your friend? What friend? Oh, she's all right. She was already cracked in the head, kinda. What do you mean? Oh, she's just always getting to some shit. Told you, she got herself kicked out of that fancy boarding school. Right. Not supposed to say, but something about her and her teacher. I thought you weren't supposed to say. I'm not, I'm not. I don't really know. She's always been a little wild, but she's not your problem. Been mine since we were five. Oh, are you guys like? No. Well, one time, said she's wild. <laughs> you don't want to go there, trust me. Hunter, man, I don't even know her. Cool. Coming to Walmart later? Can't. Curfew. Your curfew's 10. 8.30 for the foreseeable. Myrtle, don't play. <laughs> well, maybe she'll ease up when we're one big happy. Don't say it. Mad dad, your mom? Yep. We'd be like brothers. Yep. Whatever, me and my brother now. Get out of here. They bro hug, and then Hunter goes. Lucas gathers up the horseshoes to throw again, and then a very spooky thing happens, where the horseshoe hits its target, and there's a very weird echo in which he hears a woman's voice singing. He's like, what's going on? He does it again, hears the same voice singing, and then a hammering sound begins, and he's like, you know, hello, hello, hello. is anybody here? Is anyone here? And a mysterious voice says, look under the pillow. And he's like, what? And it says it again. Look under the pillow. And he gets the F out of there. <laughs> and then the chorus emerges from the trees. And, and sings this. In the middle of the land is the town of good. In the middle of the town is a big dark wood. We are a ghost hunter show, and this is haunting number two, and yes. we need to like write it down in a little notebook. Yes. So, um, chicken wire. Yes. Okay. So, talk to me about hauntings. Talk mm -hmm. to me about how you how these sort of exist in the show, and how they should make us feel. Spooky. <laughs> you should Spooky. feel however you want. To <laughs> um, no, they they are the moments because most of the show I think takes place in a very naturalistic world, sure. and these are the moments that we are like, no, this is a folk tale. There is some magic in mm -hmm. this space. And so they're the moments where we break open kind of reality and inject some haunting cool. spookiness into it. And, and like maybe with design said, and stuff. Oh, yeah, that being said, I think something that's important to us about this show is that there's different levels of the word haunting mm -hmm. and what that means. And that every 
quote-unquote supernatural thing that happens in this show is both supernatural but also is something that's really happening psychologically to the person that it's happening to. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So that you could you could say Lucas hears a mysterious voice in the woods saying, look under the pillow. You could also say that Lucas is starting to be like, I want answers. Mm. I am suspicious of something. You could say that Myrtle literally sees the apparition of her ex-husband. You could also say that the memory of him and guilt attached to him and longing for him is following her around and on her mind all the time. So the, these two things are kind of always in play. Oh, man. I love that look at all the things that haunt mm -hmm. just exactly. humans yeah. daily, but sort of a, a real manifestation of that. And on a big level, I mean, the show will get to it, but there's also like we are haunted by our own history, mm -hmm. collective right. and personal. And um, something that Myrtle says in Gone People is, I remember you, even the ones that I never knew, like mm -hmm. that there are things that haunt us from our collective history that we may not even know about or may not be aware of. And that's a big thread in this show is like um, what's, what possesses us that we don't know is possessing us, what's following us around that belongs yeah. to our ancestors what that we're still carrying. What controls us and causes us to act in certain ways, like generational influences and scars that we don't even realize we carry around. And we'll get to that a lot more. I love how theater particularly can break these things open, you know, that we can, we can see the actual haunting and understand the psychological haunting mm. sort of all at the same time. All right, so our intrepid characters play... <laughs> one of my favorite games next. <laughs> Person and Waffle, yes. <laughs> I just want to say this is a real game. I don't know that it really works, but uh, it was taught to me by a friend of mine on a car trip. Um, is it more like a person? Do you want to do an like example of it? Yeah, I kind of feel like we need, we, we, we need. So Hunter and Julian Lucas are like bored and hanging out on Lucas's porch yep. and they're playing this game that goes sort of like this. Um, I will think of something and Rebecca asked me, is it more like a person or more like a waffle? Is it more like a person or more like a waffle? It is more like a waffle. <sighs> is it more like a waffle or more like a rock? It is more like a rock. And then you go on like that until you give up in frustration. <laughs> <laughs> Does it ever? Do you ever? <laughs> um, I have seen it work and I've also seen it more frequently be very frustrating. Yeah, but just I just wanted to have someone say, is it more like a person? Or more, more like, like waffle, waffle in our show. So there. Oh, oh, I was gonna say it feels like one of those wonderful games that cell phones have now robbed us of. <laughs> you know. I bet there's an app though. I bet there's I, a yeah. person or waffle app. <laughs> so they're playing that game, and Hunter like is stands in for all of us right now, and is like, "This game is stupid. Yeah. I want to leave and take Julie to the gun range." But and Julie, Julie is like, "Oh, um, how about you just leave Hunter, and I'll stay here with Lucas." Yeah, um, so Julie that is happens. causing trouble. Yeah, really. And then um, Lucas and Julie are alone and are like, oh, it's becoming dusk. And here we are on the porch together. Let's sing a duet. Um, and they <laughs> sing a song called Special. That That's is, why it's a musical. Um, exactly. Yep. About um, the things they have in common. And like they find common ground in that when Julie was younger, she was a child pageant queen and rebelled strongly against her family's expectations and feeling objectified. And Lucas is like, hey, hey yeah. I kind of feel the same way too. When I was younger, I played piano. And suddenly I just became that one little black kid who plays piano all the time. And so I didn't want to be seen only as that, as the special kid. And mom wanted me to keep doing it to get money for colleges. And so I rebelled and they're like, hey. And then at the end of the song, um, it ends this way. Yeah. Yeah, but it also sucks because I really like playing piano and I don't anymore. Totally. I won Little Miss for the talent portion, for ballroom dancing. <laughs> And same, they sit in the falling dark. 
If you could really go invisible, would you want to? I think about that. What I want is to be like the cicadas, you know? They listen a minute. They sing once like every 17 years, then they're done with public obligations. And they look at each other and maybe they're gonna kiss and suddenly, I just wanna change my clothes. They got that half price shrimp before seven. And Myrtle and Ron come home and everybody is, meets in the driveway. Ruined it. Okay, so, okay, so, so we almost, we definitely saw some spark happening yeah. between Julie and Lucas. Yep. And then Myrtle and Ron came and totally ruined it with the half price shrimp. Yes. And also <laughs> gross. <laughs> yeah. yes. Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> As Myrtle says, you know, half price shrimp means old shrimp, right? Right. Yes. Exactly. I don't think Ron knows. Wise woman. Wise woman. <laughs> um, but they all show up on the porch. Um, I think Myrtle and Ron sort of think that they're keeping their relationship a secret. And but all the kids, the kids know, know about it. Oh, um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> Lucas and Julie exit. He is going to go walk her to the bus. Um, Myrtle wants to go inside and change her clothes. Somehow Ron decides that this is the moment to pop the question. Oh, Ron. <laughs> and he sings a song called I'm Here in which he is like, I, I'll i be here for you. Give me a chance. And is kneeling down with the ring, and who should walk into the driveway but, but John Harper, <gasps> who shows Only up. Myrtle can see. Yep. Oh, uh, okay. And he, <laughs> spiritual John Harper. Spiritual John Harper. <laughs> so as soon as Ron kneels down, John Harper appears, and as Ron is singing this beautiful love song, I'm here, Myrtle is seeing both John Harper, her husband, the apparition, and Ron, her boyfriend, proposing to her, and is torn between the two of them. And at the end, she doesn't say no, but she doesn't say yes, and she takes the ring, and they go off to dinner. Well, yeah, pretty awkward to say yes when your like husband's <laughs> spiritual <laughs> manifestation is watching. Just, just showing up to be like, just so you know, you're still in love with me. <laughs> right, know? right. So, I'm here. This is I'm some here. serious codependence going on yeah. here. I like to imagine he's doing Beyonce's single ladies and reminding her that she's like actually still married. He's still got a ring on. Well, that's in the show. <laughs> Put it in. Um, all right. Feels important. Do they get the half-price shrimp? They do. They, they do. do. Go the go last thing she says is like, we better hurry or okay. we're going to miss the shrimp. Okay. Oh, okay. Gross. Ron gets the so, shrimp. Yeah. He doesn't get a wife, but he gets the shrimp. Oh. <laughs> At least now. Constantly and salmonella. <laughs> so, and then do we go from here to welcome to good? And then we're in welcome to good. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is... We meet Hunter at a local bar. Um, it's a very particular kind of bar. Um, often described. I used to say, if there is not a Confederate flag on stage, we should just assume that one is in the bar somewhere. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so they're singing this really fun Southern rock song called Welcome to Good, which about is how about how great their town is. Everything is wonderful and good. Everybody loves each other. We get along with everybody. And then Lucas walks in and they stop the song in their tracks. And they're like, huh? Not white person just walked in, yep. which Lucas um, clocks, but Hunter doesn't. And that is the beginning of an awkward scene where Lucas is like, why did we come to this bar? And Hunter's like, I just wanted to buy you a drink for your birthday. I have they a fake ID. Here, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and they all the have unspoken rules are at play. So there's a series of awkward things like the bartender is squirrely about serving Lucas, and Hunter doesn't really take that in either. And, and also, um, Lucas is beginning to hear whether in reality or just his head in his head again whispers of John Harper about how he was a wild man. And, and somebody says, Isn't that John Harper's kid? when yeah. Lucas walks in. And he, so there's another layer of like, What? the hell like what is this about my dad again who was John Harper oh he was a wild man blah 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 and so by the time Hunter comes with the drinks Lucas is like I think we should Let's go. get out of here and Hunter 
takes personal offense and is like, you just don't want to spend time with me. And a fight happens um, where Julie comes up and the fight is ostensibly about like, hey, you took my girl from me, but it's not. It's about all the unspoken mm. tensions that are happening. Lucas is going to a better school. He's with Julie. Um, you know, Hunter doesn't have a mom at home. Lucas has a mom. There's a lot of jealousy and a lot of tension and Lucas finally leaves. Hunter explodes. Lucas leaves the bar and then... And then the lights flicker oddly. As Hunter is sitting by himself. And a mysterious man approaches him um, dressed in oddly old-fashioned clothing um, who no one else in the bar but Hunter can see. Hunting number three. Hunting yeah. number three. Girl trouble? Hmm? Oh, yeah. Money trouble? Sure, I guess that too. Throwing a broke down truck and we got a country song. <laughs> My truck is fine. Oh, that's too bad. Ever feel like you're doing all the right things and shit still ends up sideways? Like you keep putting one and one together, but it never adds up to two? I sure do, brother. And like other people seem to add things up kind of easy. And okay, sometimes they deserve it more, but all the time? Mm-hmm. And the bitch of it is then they're gonna turn around and tell you that you the man that's keeping them down. Well, I... Hunter sees the man's face for the first time. Whoa. You look just like my... Do I know you? Mike could. Been around here a long time. He unscrews a flask and drinks. I like your tattoo. Thank you kindly. Why a black cat? Why not a black cat? You know? Group I belong to, we all got them. Kind of a brotherhood type of gesture. Oh, like a club? Like a brotherhood. The man pours liquor from his flask into Hunter's glass. They toast and Hunter drinks. They settle into talking as the lights fade. Do you think I have a chance at that part? <laughs> I was going to say, I do not want to bump into you at a bar. <laughs> That's Kevin Barboy. Yeah. Um, we transition to Myrtle's living room where Julie has come over to wait for Lucas. While she's waiting for him, she asks Myrtle for a reading. Yeah, um, and Myrtle agrees, and they talk a bit, and then, right, we're reading this together. Yes. <clears throat> I'm reprising my role as Julie. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in what people say about Murder Pond? The chorus gathers around the house. Depends. In the middle of the town. Do I believe there's a man in the water gonna grab your ankle? No. In the middle of the wood. But do I know something's happened to give that place its name? At the bottom of the pond. You know the story of Annie Barnes? Annie Barnes? Yes, indeed. My family line. And this about some of your kin, too. They say She lived in town just up the way She died 100 years ago 100 years ago They say they say she was a lowly maid To the richest man in town He wanted her She didn't seem to want him So some shit went down This was 1915 
It was April when they called her in to the Whitaker Club of an evening. By the servant's door near the garden gate, and the men folks taking supper late said, Annie, darling, won't you make and bring some of your finest cake to us here later on tonight? And she thought it was strange, but she went right away. And that was the last of her. They say. And Myrtle goes on to explain that her ancestor, Annie Barnes, um, as she was um, raped and murdered by a group of men from the Whitaker Mansion, um, and her body was tossed in the water back in 1915. It's kind of an open secret. Everybody knows who did it. No one was ever brought to justice. This part is actually based on a, a true story um, uh, in Alabama lore. Um, and there's an urban legend Myrtle explains about Annie Barnes, which is like the Iron John one, that if you go down to the pond and say, I have your baby three times, that Annie will come out of the water and appear at you. And she's chatting to Julie about this, and Julie is suddenly like, wait, I saw Annie Barnes the night that I fell into the water. That's what made me slip. I heard a scream. I turned to look, and I, and I fell. And Myrtle starts to pick up on something... Um, questionable that ha has happened to Julie in her past, but before they can get into it, Lucas comes home, Julie gets rattled, and she runs off. And, and that's Lucas the end of the like, scene. Mom, what are you doing? And Myrtle's like, would you like some tea? <laughs> <laughs> so plot thickens here. So now, yeah. so so we can assume now some of what we saw in the prologue mm. was involving Annie Barnes. Good one. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. We'll um, get there too. But. And then at this point, if you were seeing this on stage, Myrtle has one of my all-time favorite props that we talk about. Mm. Um, yes, the golden ball. Okay. Um, so there's a little moment where Julia says, oh, I I thought you would have a crystal ball that you used to do your fortunes. And she's like, you know what? I did once. I, did once. <laughs> I found a beautiful, shiny golden ball in the forest by the pond years ago. And I put it in my garden and somebody stole it and I don't know what happened to it. Great. So put just, it in the garden to attract good energy. I mean, should I call it haunting number four? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what it attracted was a thief who I guess lacked him some gazing balls. Yep. So so we flagged that. Okay. Yeah. Flag the flag the ball. Flag the golden ball. <laughs> and then we meet this is like the living room sequence. So we were just with Julian Myrtle in their living room. And then simultaneously we go to the Pate household where Hunter and Ron are sitting watching TV. Hunter's just had this argument with Lucas. He's frustrated about Julie. He just met this random dude at the bar who gave him some... <laughs> oh, yeah, we didn't unpack the brotherhood moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, and so all of this is rolling around in his head. And to Hunter, that means, you know, I'm going to drop out of school and just become a police officer. And like so he, my dad. That's like what my I dad, want. Because that's what my dad did. So he's like, I'm going to do this, dad. And Ron's like, no, you're not. <laughs> and Hunter is like, well, what's the point? And Ron, seeing all of this frustration in his son, decides this is the moment to share some fatherly advice with him in the form of a book called The Code of Chivalry, which is a joke that he had with his own father about how cops used to be knights who followed a code of, like, protect the woman, do everything mm. for your town, um, be a man, essentially. Yeah, it's sort of a, a scene where none of the advice that Hunter actually needs is communicated at all, <laughs> and um, there's a father and son Dad's manhood moment, and dad yeah. is trying his best, and um, uh, yeah, and so they sing this uh, questionable but sweet song called "Nights Together," which ends like this: Be a knight, be a knight like them heroes of old, armor and honor and gall. 
with a sword and a shield and a lady fair and try to remember the point of it all. What's my dad complaining? Are you a boy or a man in training? Don't need to wait to know what's right. Be a knight. Oh, I see what you mean. It's the combo of that advice after the Brotherhood is... They start, he has two roads diverge in a wood once. Hunter has taken the one that leads not to good places. But he thinks, but it could. I mean, that's the thing I think about. um, This is like the thread of Iron John that's related to the men's movement, the Mm -hmm. Iron John men's movement, Mm -hmm. which I guess we can talk about Mm -hmm. in our like post- Show analysis. Tell, tell, talk to us a little bit about now. Um, in 1991, I think, the mm-hmm. poet Robert Bly published a book called Iron John, a book about men, which brought this uh, folktale kind of to the American consciousness because um, he sort of used it. Um, he interpreted this fairy tale as a way of talking about, like, the wound, the wounded um, masculine psyche in mm-hmm. our culture today and what the steps that need to be taken to address it and like Regain it had a lot your masculinity release your inner wild find man. your inner wild man that's at the bottom of the pond steal the key from under your mother's pillow find your individuality and um a pretty huge men's movement grew out of this book um that is in some ways awesome they coined the term toxic masculinity and is in some ways troubling because a lot of the book is like and because of the feminist movement these wounds blah 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 and we need to take our power it's he would say it's a book about taking men back you know and um personally uh i i find some uncomfortable connecting threads between the iron john groups and groups like the proud boys or the promise keepers or um uh some very anti-feminist groups that are also very uncomfortably linked to white supremacy which Mm. is kind of what this play is quietly trying to and i think it's that idea that the code of chivalry is not Similarly, it's not a bad thing, but anything taken to an extreme can lead you into a not good place. And so I think that's what we're starting to see and kind of an examination of how a good kid like Hunter could end up where he does end up by the end of the show. Like to be a knight, you need a lady fair who wants your protection and a a monster who who you can defeat. Um, So I feel like that's like all I really want to say about it (laughs) right now because it it unrolls. Sure. But anywho... So um, then we sort of ramp up into the the ending of Act One, which is Lucas um, back at home, uh, comes home from the same fight and goes to his mother and says, you know what? I'm sick of not knowing what the deal is with my father. We never talk about him. I don't know why we never talk about him. Where is my dad? So John Harper, of course, walks into the kitchen and is like, yes, Myrtle. I think we'd all like to hear this. Why don't you talk about where I am and what happened? And she's like, please go away. And he's like, I won't. And she starts getting a headache. And there's sort of like Lucas is leaning on her. John Harper is leaning on her. And all that we really get out of her is that um, Myrtle and John Harper are recovered addicts. They both had addiction in their past. They both got clean before they met. But they made an agreement that if they got married, if anybody was to relapse, they would have to separate, especially if they had a child. It's just too, like... There's too much at stake. And so she just kind of goes, he relapsed, and that's what happened. And John Harper's like, there's more to the story than that. And she's like, I have to go lie down. And she leaves the room. And Lucas begins to hear a mysterious hammering sound. And the voice comes back again and says, look look under the pillow. And he's like, what? And it says again, look Look under under the the pillow. pillow. And he looks under one of the cushions on the couch and finds a key. The key opens a wooden box on the altar, 
out of the wooden box comes um, an old Hallmark card, which is signed John Harper, and an official-looking envelope from the government with John Harper's last known address on it. And Lucas, without a second thought, grabs his coat, runs out the door, and goes to the address. And then we see Lucas standing on a street corner looking across the street at the address, which turns out to be a halfway house where his father is. And he's seeing the Act One Closer called Halfway, where he's deciding whether he actually wants to go into the halfway and meet halfway house and meet his father and all the possibilities that could happen. He won't recognize me. He will recognize me and not care about me. Um, and then also we see the other main characters in their own spaces also realizing that they are halfway towards something in this place of instability where they cannot stay. Um, they have to either move forward or Yeah, Myrtle's like, do I get married? Apart. Julie's yeah. like, do I tell somebody about this secret from my past? Hunter's like, do I become a knight? You know, <laughs> Ron is like, what am I going to do? Yeah. Um, and Lucas is ruminating and singing this song. And at the climax of the song, before he can make a decision, John the door Harper. to the halfway house opens and the real life John Harper in the flesh walks out holding in his hand golden a golden ball. ball. End of act one. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, do you envision anything happening scenically so we totally get that this is real John Harper and sort of reality isn't bending. Two things on that. One, <laughs> that when we did the NYU production, the lighting designer did this beautiful thing that when John Harper was in Myrtle's mind, there was like a green light on him mm -hmm. and sort of everything that was ghostly had a greenish tinge and that when John Harper um, is the real John Harper, there wasn't. Um, two, I don't really mind people mm. being a little bit like, is this really happening? You know, <laughs> sure. And yeah. three... When you see it, it's very clear that it's really, yeah. that it really happens because we start Act Two with them having a real conversation that's obviously very real. Um, so yeah, and then yeah. psychologically, so we've talked about sort of the hunting. So so we can also take it as um, Lucas has has reached a point where he needs answers and he figures yeah. out how to get them. Mm -hmm. Yep. When do you think he knows that his dad's still alive? Like, is it when he sees the address or is he still wondering when he gets to that door? I think it's when he sees, because the the envelope is like from recently. Oh, okay. That's like, and Myrtle has just been kind of taking everything to do okay. with John Harper and putting it in a box. But that's a big moment too, because he's obviously been lied to for years. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, not necessarily mind. lied to. It's just whenever it comes up, Myrtle just says he was oh, a wild man. He was just a wild man. Oh, okay. He's yeah, not in our lives now. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, so, so he doesn't know. Okay. He you know. knows nothing. And so, is there something too that, uh, like, this letter is is recent? M Myrtle has been conjuring him. Like, I, I imagine it's really different to be dating someone mm -hmm. and not knowing where your ex husband or your yeah. husband is versus dating someone and having the address of your husband's yeah, in a box. She knows. Yeah. I think she knows that his like release is coming soon, and she just doesn't want to deal with it. And that's partially why she feels she feels guilty for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. And and that could also be part of the reason why John has started haunting her now. Yeah. And right. Her right. Life. The the instigating haunting. Because a big a big theme in this show also is like how badly we want to shove things down to the bottom of the pond that we don't want to deal oh. with, and it just makes things worse. You know, right, they're going to come up and grab your they're legs. They're going to come up anyway and <laughs> grab your legs, exactly. Like, you know. So, yeah. So, act one ends, everybody gets some snacks and comes back. <laughs> Not on this that was, podcast. What kind of snacks? Yeah. 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 Are they themed yeah. snacks? Boiled peanuts, maybe. Sure, yeah. Oh. Yeah, what press pause, get your snacks and, now. LaCroix. And, Myrtle loves to drink LaCroix, mm -hmm. and John Harper likes to drink Coca-Cola. That's like sober people drinks in the show. And everybody who actually drinks alcohol in the show drinks wild turkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're one of three people in yes. the world of Iron John. <laughs> um, 
All right, so then we come back. We've had our so, snacks. Yep, and then we come back at the top of Act Two, where we are thrown immediately back into 1915. And the chorus um, is on stage. Yes. Oh, can I just ask a quick chorus question? Yes. So uh, how many people, do they sort of come in and out of scenes anytime we're hearing this music? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we've had a chorus as large as 14. We've had a chorus as small as four. We've realized that 14 is too many and four is too few. Great. So somewhere <laughs> in between Somewhere there. in between. Cool. Um, yeah. And um, yes, so kind of the whole idea of the chorus is that they are the ones who know the story and are guiding us through this tale. And so anytime they show up, they're like, hey, here's some more information. We're not going to give you everything, but here's some more information. They're guiding us. They're like, hey, did you get that? Did you get that part? There is something at the bottom of the pond. We're not going to tell you what it is yet. So you know? really listen up when the chorus is talking to you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They're, and they're sort of always there. Like we've sort of played with ideas of like, they're gone people. They're mm. citizens of the town. And they're shapeshifters because in some scenes they're like, they play all the patrons at the bar that sure. Hunter takes Lucas to. They play all the patrons at a bar later. They're quote unquote real people, but really they're like, um, they're the only people who know the whole story. The audience doesn't know it. The characters don't know it. They're the people who are like, listen up, watch how this unfolds so we can show you how all these things connect to everything else. Okay. And they're um, teaching us something. They're trying to leave us with a, a lesson. So at the top of act two, we start with. Whitaker Quarry, good Alabama, 1915. It's a beautiful day in the forest. A woman played by the actress who plays Myrtle comes down the path and she's singing to herself. Um, Jason will be singing the chorus in this beginning part. In the middle of the land is the town of Good. In the middle of the town is a big dark wood. In the middle of the wood is a big dark pond, and at the bottom of the pond is... She arrives in the clearing. Hello? A hammering sound is coming from above the ledge. Hello? Are you in? A man, played by the actor who plays John Harper, emerges on the ledge above, hammer in hand. <laughs> well, they weren't wrong. I asked, but where does he live? And they said, sure, just take the forest road. You'll know him when you see him. And so I do. You there coming out of the trees like the green man. The spirit of the forest. Do you not have that story here? I'm new, uh, at the house. They've sent me over for the horse's shoes. It's heavy. Best wait for Mr. Pate to come by and take it. Ah, uh, well, Mr. Pate didn't arrive to work this morning again, so I'll just take what I can carry, and sure, unless you've got the horse as well, I'll be grand. He goes to retrieve the horseshoes from above the ledge. I've a bit of food they sent for you as well. He lived in town just up the way. This was a hundred years ago, one hundred years ago, they say. Uh, I'm not sure what it is exactly. It looks a bit like meat and a bit like... He has returned. Jelly. Ah, uh, thanks. She hands him the bucket and takes the horseshoes, gets up to go. They say he was a blacksmith to the richest man of good. He lived alone, all on his own, in the middle of the wood. He's looking in the bucket and grimaces slightly. I know, it's very strange food, isn't it? I get myself at the boarding house in town. 
And what did they give you there? Plate of meat and greens, most nuts. Ah, uh, bacon and cabbage, is it? I'm with you there. Sure, no one should have to eat what's wobbly. <laughs> well, a good day to you. She starts to go. Slanawaya. Did you say something? Nope. You did? I didn't. You did, like? Just said goodbye. In Irish? Yes. Goodbye. No, come here now. What else do you know? Nothing. I must have heard it in town once. Well, Gorev Mahagats. That's thank you. What for? Just, I do miss home a bit, you know? And I'm sure I don't know a word of African. <coughs> Nor do I, ma'am. Don't you? Uh, no, no one does. Lived here all my life. Oh, I see. I'm Annie, Annie Barnes. John. Have you no surname? Harper, but most folks just call me... Sean Eren. What's that? It's what they call you, John of Iron. Iron John. In the middle of the wood is a big dark pond, and at the bottom of the pond is Iron John. And that's the first scene of the second act. All right, so the pieces are coming together. Yes, that's the idea. Oh, it makes me gutted to get to know Annie and how cute she is. <laughs> and like knowing what yeah. um, at least the lore is about what happens to her. Yeah. All right, so the, the chorus is starting to reveal 1915 to us now. So we spent yeah. all most of act one mm -hmm. in 2015. Yeah, with Save little like- for the prologue, right. all of act one is in 2015. Right, yeah. and so now we're sort of, getting to know what's at the bottom of the pond, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And so now we know that Iron John was a real person. He's oh, right. this guy, he's a blacksmith, he lives in good, he's, um, lives in the middle of the woods and does this work in this house. Picks and, up a little bit of Irish. And, um, and Annie Barnes, Annie Barnes is, also is an Irish immigrant. Person. She's a real person. She is a housemaid to the wealthy Whitaker family. Um, that day, Mr. Pate, who we will find out who he is, uh, didn't show up to work, so she has to go pick up the horseshoes for him, and this is their, like, meet-cute in 1915. And so the chorus, once once they introduce both of them, they can be like, again, like we said, there's something at the bottom of the pond, and it's Iron, Iron John. Um, and then we flip back to 2015. 2015, where we left Lucas standing, staring at his father, John Harper, as he's just walked out of the halfway house, and we pick up right at that same moment, and John Harper is like, Damn, that's my kid. Yeah, <laughs> they have a cutesy. They have a meet cute also. Yeah. We go where, from one to the other. Um, they meet, and John Harper is a little, he's a little bit of a standoffish guy, you know, and he seems like he's about to walk away and be like, I don't want any of this. And then he turns back and says, Hey, you coming with me or what? You know, which in the folktale, this is the part where Iron John puts the little prince on his back and walks away into the woods. And he, yeah. but he takes him to a bar called the Clearwater Tavern. And I think, uh, Small thing, but important thing that we hear from him is John Harper says, my first day out. And mm -hmm. it's literally, this is his first day leaving the halfway house and it's, bam, there's your son come to find you that you haven't seen in 15 years. So um, besides the like visual necessity, does does John Harper bring the golden ball with him to the bar? Feels he does. very important. Does. And then the bar scene begins. There's a sequence where they spend pretty much a whole night in this bar together getting to know each other. Okay. And um, the golden ball is on the table Lucas says, you know, 
is this my mom's golden ball that she has always been talking about? She's always going on about how someone stole it. And, and John, John Harper says, says yeah, yeah, you did. You did. When you were little, you stole this and you brought it to me in prison when she used to bring you to visit. Um, you were tiny, but you were determined. Um, and that begins this night of, he buys Lucas his first beer. Lucas is like, but I can't drink because you guys were addicts. And he's like, you're your own person. So they sit there. Lucas has a couple of beers. John Harper drinks a couple of Coca-Colas. The chorus um, sings interstitial melodies, taking us through a night at the Clearwater that um, gets deeper and deeper into who are you, who are you. We find yeah. out John Harper plays piano also. That's um, where he got it from. Yeah, Lucas plays piano. John Harper plays piano. We find out that the whole wild man, he was just a wild man thing, is a joke that he and Myrtle had that um, <sighs> he was just a crazy wild man, always rolling, always flying. Yeah. Um, but he says, I, I learned the wildest thing to be is is me and it we it's a thread of like what wild actually means to us in this play is natural is the being the natural world being yourself and who you actually are and he you know he's been through a lot he's gotten sober he's been in jail for a long time he lays a lot of wisdom on lucas and they get to know each other and so uh lucas then also describes what happened at the pond with julie and getting arrested and John Harper, I think we were saying earlier, um, good fatherly advice versus versus bad fatherly advice. <laughs> yeah. John Harper says to him, um, I think you're actually mad about that. And Lucas is like, yeah, no, mom's always on my ass. It happens all the time. And, I'm mad at my mom. And John's like, no, you're mad about that. You should feel the feelings that you feel because if you don't, they're going to bottle up inside of you and cause horrible things, let things possess you. You don't want that. Yeah. If you're not in your body you're hanging out a vacancy sign that says someone else can come on in there and do whatever they please, which is what happens to Hunter. I like that line. Mm -hmm. I Thank like you. that line in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so after all of that, Lucas finally looks at his father and asks, what happened? And we'll be playing this chunks of the Wild Man demo, but there's um, uh, finally John Harper tells Lucas the story of what happened, which is that they were driving home one Lucas night when two. Lucas was two years old in his car seat, they were stopped by a couple of cops, a guy and his partner, um, for kind of no reason. It was sort of a driving while black <laughs> incident. Um, things escalated. The cop wanted John Harper to get out of the car. He didn't know why. He said he had to search the car, and he was, he like, was like, "That's you, my son in there. Do that. I need to get my son out." Um, it became fi a physical confrontation. He pushed John Harper down. John Harper pushed back. The guy got very angry. And come to find out, he then quote unquote found something in the car, a little foil packet. So he he, they the cops um, planted the drugs in the car, and um, arrested him for possession. And that is why he went to jail. And um, an important thing that John Harper says is that the weird thing is that the face he'll always remember is the cop's partner, who stood there, knew something was up, knew this was bullshit. If I can say that on this podcast, go for it, and did nothing. And he said, I just remember that guy's face standing there pretending not to know what was up. That guy just standing there pretending. On a happy note, yes, um, they've been talking about the piano and John Harper finally encourages Lucas to play the piano at the bar, which is the same piano that John Harper himself had played at the bar when he used to manage it. Aww. And it's this beautiful moment where Lucas plays piano again for the first time with his father, all the patrons of the bar dancing around them. And we sing joy. wild things grow, wild things grow. And All right. So we'll play some of the demo.
I was a stone. <laughs> I was an arrow, always rolling, always flying. Not interested in being known, interested in mystifying, always lying. I'll admit, always lit, hard as nails, or so I thought, never doing what I ought. How to kick when I got riled. Yeah, I was wild. But my mom is like driving me nuts. She makes it so much worse when she's always like, wrong place, wrong time. And now your curfew's nine. And remember that you're black. And I know she's trying to care. And I know she has my back. And I know she thinks she knows, but she doesn't. From the sublime to the less sublime, um, <laughs> lights come up on Hunter and Julie in Hunter's truck, and this scene happens. Hunter turns engine off. Julie is putting on lip balm in the mirror. Hunter is wearing slightly nicer clothes than we've seen him in before. Thanks for the ride. Ugh, I can't wait until they let me drive again. You want to smoke? Mm, nah. So, does your school have, like, uniforms now? <laughs> Hell no. Just asking. I haven't really seen you in a while. I just be 18 soon. I'm not a kid anymore, you know? I clean up all right, right? You do. Okay, well. Plus, I kind of got this job. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm like promoting events for these guys. Just kind of happened. He takes a folded flyer out of his pocket and shows her. Big thing on Saturday, all these bands. <laughs> the White Knights, the Proud Boys. These are bands? I think like the organizers, I don't know. It's this men's group, but it's an open event. You should come with. Yeah, maybe. No, I mean, I'm asking. It's adorable to me every time Hunter says, plus I kind of got this job. <laughs> He's trying. He's trying oh, hard. Hunter. Yeah, yeah you, got a you took the wrong path out of good there, buddy. Yeah, so yeah, so he's he's doing some kind of, he's working for whoever he met in the bar. We don't really know who they are. We're starting to get a feeling about it, um, especially since we know that the Proud Boys are going to be in attendance. Right. The White yeah, Knights. You either gets, you hear wow. that or you don't hear and that. And he's yeah. oblivious to this? I mean, sort I think of. It feels he like, has to know. be. I think what Hunter knows is that this guy is saying a lot of things that are making him feel stronger and good and that he yeah. invited him to like a men's event where they're going to be talking about stuff like that. And he's like, great, I'll help you promote it. Yeah. And he doesn't know who the Proud Boys are. Like, yeah, they, are they are speaking to a need that he is been feeling increasingly over yeah. the course of this show. So with that lovely taste in our mouth, we go back to 1915. <laughs> Annie and John are at the Forge. Um, it's four weeks after they've met. It's sunny. It's a hot day. And they're taking like a little bit of a break in their work day. John is washing his face in the pond and Annie is reading from a letter. <clears throat> if you strike us down now, we shall rise again and renew the fight. If our deed is not sufficient to win freedom, then our children shall win it by a better deed. Hmm. Patrick Pierce. My brother Brendan goes to hear him speak in Dublin. He writes things down for me, all about the rising that's to come. The South will stand against the North and the English crown, and Ireland will be free. Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin awan! Ourselves, ourselves alone. Isn't it beautiful? 
South against the North, huh? I try not to think too much about that kind of thing. Had enough around here of troubles and fighting. Now we just trying to survive. <laughs> it's more than surviving you are. Everyone knows you miles around. You're no ordinary handyman. You're special, like. <laughs> yeah, special. Something my grandfather used to say. Make yourself indispensable, John. People can get something from you they need. They're less likely to mess with you. And so I am. How I stay alone. I mean, free. <laughs> Is that the same thing? Is it for your country? I think he... He just means that passion is good. For a man to love his nation as his bride. He's saying that that passion is a fuel for the best of things. And the worst. He goes back to work. She watches him. Did you never think to marry Iron John? <laughs> I did think, yes. I did think about it. Once, and then once again another time. What happened? Suppose I got used to this. They look around. The sun, the water, the bees buzzing. And yourself, Miss Annie? Oh, there was a boy making noise about it before I left. Asked Brendan for me, if you please, like I was the prize milk cow. <laughs> Ara, he was nice enough, but the drink was in him more often than not. If I wanted that sort of thing, I suppose I'd go and marry Mr. Pate. Would you? No. Do you know, he's always hanging about the church when I come out on Sundays. I don't think he even goes to Mass, like... A beat where she sews and he works, and we watch them. I like things. Things is easier than people. Set out to make a gate, you usually get a gate. Set out to make a fence, and so on. I learned my trade from my father. He learned from his. My grandfather was a blacksmith on the Whitaker Plantation back when they had, uh... He made his own tools, because he didn't want to use what they'd give him. Things have thoughts, John, he'd say. They carry the thoughts of the owners. And thoughts is contagious. Understand? I understood. To own is to possess, he said. To possess, occupy. Once a thing is in, hard to get it out. Understand? I understood. Don't take nothing. You don't know where it come from. And always better to make your own. Understand? I understood. We make our own, we keep our own. And so I built this forge, and so I built my home, by myself, for myself. Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, I want. Myself alone. And you see that house, I make all the ironwork they own. And that's a lot, every horse is shoe. Every garden gate has got my thoughts in it Maybe that's why I never left this town Cause that's another thing about things You make something with your hands, with your own self You 
put down roots in it. But maybe it also puts down roots in you. Maybe it roots you to the spot. That's more than I've heard you say in a fortnight. <laughs> Wasn't ever much for conversation. It's conversing with me you are now these several weeks. It's a way you talk, maybe. Most folks sound like gnats and mosquitoes to me. Can only stand it for a few and then I want to slap them. You sound more like the creek there in the shallows. Water over stone. <laughs> sure, am I always going on about something It's mostly bollocks? <laughs> Don't think so. Well, to be honest, I've said a fair few things here I didn't know I thought. I think it's yourself draws it from me now, John. Like the sunlight draws the flowers from the earth. And that's a romantic moment that gets interrupted. And Cat Pete shows up. Ah, <sighs> is this love triangle number three? Yes. Love triangle number three. The, the original. Three the original love triangle. The OG triangle. love triangle. <laughs> Iron John. The OG Iron John love triangle. <laughs> yes. So, Cat Pate enters. He is basically kind of the town ne'er-do-well, more dr drunk more often than not. He's mm. a white guy. He's always kind of down on his luck. He also works for the Whitaker family, but tends to either not get good jobs or, or just get, not show up for work. Or not show up for work because he's drunk. He fancies himself Iron John's buddy because he likes to hang out at the forge. He is played by the actor who plays Ron, and he is instantly recognizable as the man that Hunter met in the bar <gasps> in Act One. Black Catman. Mm -hmm. Exactly. He has a tattoo on his on his shoulder and everything, and his name is Cabram Pate, but he goes by the name Cat. Because who uh, wants to go around telling people your name's Cabram? Exactly. Mm. Um, so <laughs> we both react to that. <laughs> very quickly, we find out that Cat is sweet on Annie Barnes. Annie Barnes wants nothing to do with him. Um, after she leaves, he says there's a big party at the house on Saturday night. Would you all all the serving folk are invited except, of course, Iron John? Um, would Annie you? Does not say yes or no, but she does say in Irish, "Kiss my ass." <laughs> a little bit like Julie Whittaker <laughs> in 2015, like yeah. Julie Whittaker, and like Myrtle, who does not say yes. Oh, or no. sure. Yeah. And after she leaves, Cat is like, you know what? I need something to like get this to give to her, something pretty to give to her. And uh, girls, girls like, like shiny things where you can see your face in. And he says, John, make me something for her. Make me a pretty gold gazing ball <gasps> like Mrs. Whitaker has in her garden. And John's like, ugh, fine. And then Kat sits around and complains about his lot in life and starts to insinuate that John has it better than he does. While drinking. While drinking. I don't know why they won't hire me. Knocking back whiskey from a flask. John has it better than he does. He makes a little money. It gets awkward because, of course, John does not have it better than he does because John is a black man in Alabama in 1915 and Kat is white. And Kat's like, doesn't register that and is like, yeah, whatever. Wait a minute. I have a great idea. You should hire me as a striker, which is a blacksmith's assistant. And John says, I can't afford to hire you. And he says, that doesn't matter. You can just give me half the money that you make. And sings a song sings about a song, the striker, um, which is both hire me, but also I know the correct order of things. So this is kind of his warning villain song, if you will, though it's not really a villain song, of hire me as a striker to be your assistant, but really um, let know me your lay place. down some law, know your place, and also stay away from Annie. Yeah. Mm. Um, and do we want to sing like that? Cool. Just yeah, the chorus of the song. Yeah. yeah, the chorus of the song. Um, why don't we, can we do it from the top, actually, just general? Great. <clears throat> can we just sing it together like, we're at, sure. like it's a big party? Great. <laughs> <laughs> we both like this song. So, so it comes in with general. 
fire the gun King don't shine the crown Let me be the one To lay the hammer down The smith holds the iron down to the spot The striker strikes while the iron is hot Life's what it is and it ain't what it's not Don't know much but I know the way these things should go And it continues Ooh. on, has a little bit of a rap section, <laughs> but um, sings a song, a gets more and more. Nineteen fifteen rap. Yeah, 1915 yeah. rap. Um, <laughs> gets more and more into it. Um, we envision in like a full production. This is like the chorus comes out in the background, kind of dancing with him. Jasmine wants them to be the ladies from Love Actually who sing behind Bill Nye. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in the Santa Claus bikinis um you never know really period very period <laughs> and then his last line is oh and make sure the barnes girl don't come around here too often because folks might get the wrong idea Oof. then we come back to 2015 where we left off with lucas and john harper in the bar yes lucas has had a few too, too many. many beers Uh oh. <laughs> and john harper brings him home drunk and myrtle sees this <gasps> and this is kind oh, of like oh, the thing that she's feared the most about her child um, he's turning into his dad. He's yeah. going to be an addict, blah, blah, blah. That's what it means to her. And mm -hmm. Myrtle still thinks that John Harper is an apparition. I was going to say, if, yes. you're, if you've gotten really used to seeing him in your mm -hmm. imagination, oh. Yeah, so Lucas is drunk. Um, there's this really tense moment where Lucas says to her, because she's telling him, get inside the house. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And finally, um, she says, Lucas Prince Harper Barnes. And he says, no, I'm a Harper. I'm a Harper. I'm not a Barnes. <gasps> and she slaps him across the face. And, and he, he goes into the house, and then John Harper is like, oh. Can we can, can talk we about talk? <laughs> And she, she's not having it. She sings this crazy song where essentially she tries to cast out the spirit of John Harper, not realizing that it's him. Um, I always like to say um, that it's a song where she kind of vomits everything in her. Yeah. Um, it ends with our wonderful mezzos who've sung it belting a high F for like a solid 20 seconds. <laughs> and so and so John Harper, right, like that really was in Myrtle's mind. So he's like, what on earth is happening yes. here? Okay. Yeah. So John Harper is like, what has what happened going, to you? He literally yeah. says, what is going on okay. in the middle of the song? Yeah, and deep confusion. She's saying, um, why do why you, do you haunt, haunt me? me? Just leave me alone. But she's also, because she thinks she's by herself and singing to this, lets out all of her guilt about like, I, I did believe you. I believed that you were framed, but even if I did believe you, what what could I have done? And, and the, she feels guilty about how she handled things, but she misses him so much, all the stuff. And then at the very end... If you can't be here, be gone. She tries to cast him out, and then she touches his chest, realizes he's real, jerks back as if she's burned herself, and then they're and kissing. And then they're kissing. And they it, it ramps up very quickly. They're on the porch in an embrace, and Ron walks into the driveway sees this happening, and very silently walks away. Cut back to 1915. Not yet. No, yet. no. no we're still getting juicy. I got to stay <laughs> This is where everyone starts kissing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of just kissing. in shock here. Um, so um, Ron backs up, and then we go back to the forest in 2015 because Lucas, after he went inside, snuck out of the oh, house yeah. again. Um, and we have this scene um, that we call Quartet with the Fifth Wheel, which is the first time where both... 1915 storyline and 2015 storyline are on stage at the same time. And there's a knight 
in 2015, obviously, where Lucas goes to the woods and Julia's there. And there's a night in 1915 where Annie Barnes has left a party at the Whitaker house, the one that Kat invited her to, to run off and see Iron John. Mm -hmm. And Julie has also left a party at the Whitaker house in 2015 and run to the woods to get away. And there's a scene that I truly love, um, which is the scene in which the romance between the two couples really blossoms. And there's a dance we call the quartet, um, at the end of which, um, oh, also, this is a scene where Julie reveals to Lucas the painful secret from her past, mm-hmm. um, which brings them closer together. Then there's this beautiful dance that the two couples do that starts off maybe different, maybe the same, but ends up being the same dance. There's also a cute moment, I think, before it where um, Lucas gives Julie the same flowers that um, she brought, she to, brought to Myrtle. The bomb of and reveals that Balm of Gilead is, is an aphrodisiac. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that was what, knowing mamas. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. And so there's a beautiful dance. At the end of the dance, both couples kiss for the first time. Julie and Lucas leave and go back home, we assume. Iron John picks up Annie in his arms and carries her up to his house, um, where they will spend the night together. And then we see Cat Pate, who has followed Annie into the woods, step out from the trees. And we know that he's going to plot some kind of revenge and use his power as a white man to do something. He has seen everything that just happened between Annie and John. So Cat, I like... I like to say it this way, that he walks downstage and into 2015, where he is on stage leading the big rally that is the event Hunter told Julie about with all the bands, with the Proud Boys, with the White Knights, and he makes a big speech about basically men's rights and how like you've got to take your power back from people who want to take it from you. And they sing, and there's pieces and of the night song reprise, is in it. Yeah, yeah, we have a reprise of Be a Knight, like the heroes of old, and also I'm here. I'm here. You I'm see here. me. Becomes like a battle cry for these guys. Yeah. And then right at the end, the final chorus of I'm here, I've been here, is we see Hunter is at the rally, totally absorbed, singing along, black cat tattoo on his arm in some versions of the story. And <laughs> sometimes he doesn't have the tattoo. Um, so we're like, oh, this is what's happening. Um, um, and then... That's all. That's the end of the night. So over the course of the night, we've seen Myrtle and John get back together. We've seen Lucas and Julie have a moment. We've seen um, John Harper and Annie have their first moment um, of passion. Is of yeah, Iron John, and we've seen Cat see all of this. We've seen Ron Pate see all of this, and we've seen Hunter at the rally. So this is kind of all of the arcs and all of the threads coming to their apex, and the very next morning. So the very next morning, Myrtle and John Harper are um, waking up. It's like 5.30 in the morning. They've um, made love on the porch. They're a little like, what happens now? There's a vague sense that Myrtle's like, please don't leave. Like, I was I was wrong. We were wrong to try to separate. Like, let's figure something out. And she goes in the house to get him a glass of water. Um, John Harper takes a minute to himself and then starts to look around for this like old pack of cigarettes he left there 10 years ago, finds it. That's funny. Um, Hunter, meanwhile, has been seeing this strange black man who doesn't recognize um, on the Myrtle's porch, sees him feeling around the window panes looking for cigarettes. Makes an assumption about why he's there. Um, All of the things he's been hearing about, about being a knight, protecting people, protecting your woman and all of that come up into his mind and he He draws a a gun on... John Harper. And then um, kind of suddenly everyone is on stage freaking out. Um, uh, Lucas Lucas and Julie have come back home. Lucas is yelling, that's my dad. What are you doing? Myrtle's going, Hunter, what are you doing? He's like, stay stay calm. And then he's like, put put your fucking hands up to the stranger. Um, The gun goes off. Because 
Ron has heard the commotion. He's Ron slept, slept in his, in his car, car in the driveway. In the driveway. Oh, Ron. Yeah. yeah. He hears the commotion. He slams the door as he's coming out of the car. That startles Hunter. The gun goes off. John and Lucas hit the ground. Thankfully, nobody's actually shot, but it is a moment where um, everybody's on the porch and all of these issues that have been bubbling and coming forth kind of spill out of everybody in a massive argument on the and porch. And John Harper, in the middle of all of this chaos, looks at Ron and says, I know you, and recognizes him as the partner of the cop who arrested him and stood there and didn't do anything, which Ron is like, oh, I've never seen you before in my life, you know? And um, we've, then... we've, And I think... Ron truly does not remember John Harper in that way. Yeah. We've gone back and forth over it, but mm-hmm. we also, like, when I was researching this show, mm-hmm. every time I Googled Alabama police, there was an article that came up about this major um, uncovered thing of systematically over and over cops uh, pulling black men over and planting drugs. There's a really America. both funny and sad video that you can actually see of they're wearing body cams. The cop has forgotten that when you hit record on your body cam, it also takes the 30 seconds before you actually hit the record button. And so in those 30 seconds, you see him walk into the alley, drop drugs down, walk back out, and then he comes, walks up, and he's like, what have we found here? Drugs. So that that's in there. And and the the realization of this, plus Ron being like, that's my fiancé, um, is is too much for John Harper, and he leaves. And Ron utters the incredibly on-the-nose line, how did we get here? Um, and the rest of the, the play then answers that question. It goes back to 1915 and unravels what happened to Annie and Iron John that is how we got here, is the, um, what happened with the triangle in 1915 has repeated in every generation and is repeating in 2015 with the parents of these kids. And is it going to repeat again with Hunter, Lucas, and Julie? We don't know. Um, and I guess we'll I think stop this there. Is the, yeah, this is the this moment is a moment where it can either repeat again or they can take a different path. Yeah. Ugh. Um. So yeah, we have like a fun scene called murder ballad that like <laughs> reveals the whole story of of John, um, John and Annie Barnes's sad ending. Um, and then we have an epilogue that kind of ends on like, um we hope, a note of hope for these kids. Um, but I think the question mark is important. Yeah. It's a question mark. Yeah, and all the ways that we unwittingly play into old stories mm-hmm. is so yeah. scary and heartbreaking for me at the ending here. But um, the last thing that happens is we find the golden ball is in the is in the forest. Mm-hmm. And um, oh yeah, I never said that. Well, mm. Say it now. I'm saying it um, now. So yeah, in the during... quartet, when Annie runs into the forest to see Iron John, she holds up a golden ball and is like, I know you made this for me. And he's like, no, it was Mr. Payton. She's like, she throws it at him and is like, if it's from you, I want it from you. And he comes down and, and says, I made this for you. And at the same time, Lucas takes the flowers out of his pocket and says, I made, I got you these for Julie. And that's when like the scene starts to be the same scene. Aww. And in the end, um, it's just in the forest again and Hunter finds it. And my hope is that like... Whoever finds it is like, I could do something good. <laughs> like, could I do something good for someone now? So it's like the golden ball is for us in the end. All right. Now we're going to magically shift to interview. Okay. Wow. Wow. Woo. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in this show. Um, so I've heard. One thing I'm going to say just for everyone, because you, you guys got to hear it, hearing it, this, and this is why it's a musical, right, is hearing it and I'm sure seeing it, but even hearing it just is like it, it, there's so much to the story that's in that and mm-hmm. reading it on page first 
you know, it's great and there's mm. a lot of great lines, but really when you hear it and with the way, one thing I love about this is the way you guys are constantly uh, like a film, you know, putting underscoring a, and, and accenting thing and timing things out. So it's really, uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's well thought out and Thank you. it really takes it to another level. So Thank you. nice work. Tell us about the development of the show so far, how you started writing it and where you're at today. Well, when I was in high school, <laughs> this is a real thing. My father was really into Robert Bly's book, Iron Dawn, a book about men. Whoa. Um, and I was not really having it um, cut to grad school. Yeah. So we both were at NYU's uh, musical theater writing program at Tisch, GMTWP where you spend the first year kind of collaborating with a bunch of other, you either enter as a music person or a words person, you collaborate with the rest of your cohort. And then the second year, they put you together with one person and you just write a full length show all during the second year. And so you have to pitch two ideas. And so as we were brainstorming, Rebecca came up with this Iron John idea. Originally, it was maybe going to be some take on S-Town or something like that. Um, but we were going through the story and... Um, reading about Robert Bly, reading the Iron John legend. And I was like, this is cool. This is kind of weird. This is cool. But what is the story that is both of ours? Yeah. And I remember this because you were like, the the Iron John legend is weird, the actual fairy tale. And mm -hmm. it also, you were like, they're just like these people. Yeah. And they do and stuff. stuff because happens. it's very like Prince, Queen, King. Like they're like chess pieces. There's no personality except for Iron John himself is like a very specific mythical figure and it's really only one of a, a bunch of different kind of classic folk tales that are about a wild man of the woods mm -hmm. in some way but this is a famous one and um yeah I happen to be listening to a lot of S-Town at a certain point which is probably why Alabama came up um and I also sing with folk bands and I've been like playing um folk music and rock music my whole life and... so interesting fun fact actually the first song that we ever wrote together um, mm. was called isaiah um and it ended up being somehow when you combine my classical piano slash opera background and her singer sounder folk background you get irish folk slash southern <laughs> gospel <laughs> yeah so the first song we wrote together ended up being in that vein and when we sat in alabama that's just kind of the musical role that came out of the union of both of our voices yeah. And right. So Jasmine said, what's our version of this tale? Um, so I was thinking of it like with both of our backgrounds and both of our selves and our tastes in mind. But also Jasmine said, the main question for me is how did he get in the pond in the first place, which is not part of the original myth. Mm -hmm. And who knows how these things happen? It was just like the confluence of you asking those two questions. I was walking down the street and I was like, I know how he got in the pond mm. and I don't want to write about it, but I think we have to, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was just the beginning of a show that has always felt a little bit like it knew what it was. And mm. we were just like following around trying to like catch up to it. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to say one thing about that, that I think you touched on and I don't want to make you reveal anything you want to reveal, but um, a lot of this show feels very personal mm -hmm. or, and if it isn't, that's amazing. You know, and if it is, you know, that's also wonderful, but mm. um and and I guess what I mean by that is, the characters are super specific. There mm. there are a lot of details in there, and a lot of things about them that um, that reveal to me that they're 
you know, in some way you've connected to these characters on a personal level, not that your stories are the same or not that you've had the same things happen to you, yeah. but exactly. The, it, it, and so that's interesting to, to take this tale that felt very impersonal, hmm. it sounds like, or at least um, yeah. to one of you, um, and then try to sort of find a way to connect to it on a really deep personal level. And I think that has always been our way in, in all the storytelling that we do is environment and character. And we, um, I wouldn't say that Iron John, I mean, there's a lot of plot in action, but it's not really a plot driven narrative. It's mostly yeah. about these characters and just examining this time in their lives. And so, um, yeah, it has been for us in doing, telling the story, it's been creating these characters and then just putting them in the environment and saying, all right, go. And it's very personal, I think, to both of us, but not in like the ways that you would think. Like, I mean, yeah, like we haven't like had... Like your mom's not a fortune teller. Well, but I was for a long time. I, I read tarot cards and there I read them for money for a long time. And Myrtle and I have a lot in common in that way. My I... father taught me to read the tarot cards. My father is the Irish half of my ancestry. Um, he passed away in 2014. So I was like ghosts and like think, kind of... And, and Iron John being related to him was like all kind of through this for me. Yeah. So And I... It's funny when my sister came to see the show because um, I play piano. I grew up doing classical piano. And when she heard the line of like, uh, I was just that talented little black boy who played piano. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I broke my mom's piano. She was like, oh, is that how you felt? <laughs> I, I remember like, that. You were like, yeah. Emerald, it's a play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's like these things in there that are from us very specifically. Um, but also not like also one of the scariest things about it was writing people who have had experiences that mm. I have not mm. had. Like mm. it took a very long time before like Lucas would talk to me at all before John Harper like wanted to say anything. Like mm. the whole wild man sequence was like, I think the most what is it? vociferous from the beginning was Myrtle. who just, yeah. is just like, I'm Myrtle. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, my name is Myrtle. And I was like, I don't like that name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that always amazes me by the show and we get all the way to the end is that even though most of our time is spent in 2015, the, the presence of the chorus lets it really feel like a period piece a, a lot of the time. And, but then all of a sudden we are in a present moment where we are talking about the way racism is manifesting in society, the way the, the prison system is playing into, you know, and it, it all of a sudden becomes so present mm. in terms of what we all have to grapple with and, and the stories we have been repeating. Mm. And I love that. I love that it can simultaneously be, feel really of a time mm. and of right now. What's Good. interesting is actually even in the present, it still feels like a period piece mm -hmm. to me. And, and I was trying to figure that out. I was like, there's something about the present day. Maybe it's, and this could be my ignorance, but maybe it's because they're in a, a part of a place of Alabama that maybe hasn't, you know, it's not New York City or it's mm. not. Mm. So so some of the ideas feel old. Mm. Some of the way, you know, just 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 going to a, you know, I mean, going I to a bar like that and having that sort of. shrimp here. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. just kidding. But, but part of that feels, oh, that's so 1970s or night, but, mm. but, yeah. but it isn't, you know. In, and, well, I remember when we were like, Okay, do they have iPhones? Mm. Because if they do, they're on them all the time. They're and not playing chicken and waffle. And we yeah. were like, we just don't want that mm -hmm. yeah. in the show. Yeah. And so there is a little bit of a like timelessness. And I think that's But if they're New York of... City kids, they would have iPhones, yeah. right? You know? Yeah. And but... I think that's also part of what we're playing with as a folktale slash fairy tale is that, um, yes, they're very much of the 2015 town, but this is a riff on a folktale of like right. this timeless, once upon a time, there was the town of good. Yeah. 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 
And so developmentally, so you, so you developed this at NYU mm-hmm. and then you did the production at NYU? Um, so we had a 29-hour reading in the spring of 2018 and then a production of it, um, New Studio on Broadway, the undergraduate drama department at Tisch did a production of it in the fall of 2018. Which was super exciting. It was good. So we had been getting all the time, it's too complicated, it's too complex, nobody nobody can understand everything, and then they did it, and we're like, It was Look. beautiful, yeah. Well, that's and we a, had yeah. a choreographer for the first time, and we were like, is there a dance in our show? You know, and then it turned out to be like, yes. so much of it was the bodies mm-hmm. of the actors. I mean, like, John Harper leaped from the ledge, and like, 10 people caught him, and there was like, a sound oh, of wow. a splash. I mean, they were like, they were the forest, but they weren't really the forest. They were in Myrtle's house. They were moving. It was like really exciting. And like my personal, like precious moment from that whole thing was like being a, an undercover writer for the first time. Like, so I'm waiting for the bathroom at intermission. Like nobody knows who I am. And this girl turns to her friend and goes like, they said it was going to be so complex. You couldn't follow it, but I'm not having any trouble at all. And I wanted to just like throw my arm <laughs> yes! around. Yeah. Um, you just, you, when you see it, and I think that also taught us that because um, another thing, as you said, there are some cinematic aspects to it um, that we had been getting the question of, is this for the stage? Is this is for the I, I can't stand that question, by the way. <laughs> I, mean, I, I can't stand I, it. Yeah. Is, uh, almost. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, but and we saw how beautifully it could be done with very limited um props essentially just bodies in space and lighting and sound cues could evoke the entire world mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, yeah there yeah. was like a bench that was also a stove that was also mm-hmm. Hunter's car. I mean it was just like one of those when I was growing up my father had a children's theater company that was an ensemble company that only worked with bodies of the actors and uh live music. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it was for me I was like it's going to be 10 people being a forest like what's the problem you know yeah. but so it was no, kind of nice it, to see that, that question happen. comes up a yeah. lot and people i mean if theater has proven anything is mm. that it can tell stories any sort of way i mean it really there's just not i don't think there's anything that could only be told i mean mm. things are told in a different way on film and they're yeah. told in a different yeah. way on theater but to to put that limitation there like oh yeah. this this could never be a stage show yeah i think that's always a one of those comments i just sort of have to swallow i have one for you mm. so you may not have an answer to this but the with how rich each character's inner worlds are like is there do you have a fun fact about one of your characters like characters you either had to take out of the show because it was sort of extraneous or like a quirk of their character we've fought to keep everything (laughs) it's all there Uh, i'm gonna think for a second no pressure mention the orange jumpsuit or no please don't (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't count that was a very unfortunate early draft in which John Harper narrated the show wearing a prison jumpsuit. And, and it, playing and a we banjo. Don't talk about that anymore. Okay, I am so glad. You couldn't say, should we talk about the orange jumpsuit and not give it to us? So thank you. Okay, yeah. So I see. So that, I mean, that's what's really fun, right? Is like the stuff that you originally conceived that you throw out, but like. And I think the coolest moment of that that I like to tell, we had spent weeks trying to get the or the Lucas and. John Harper scene at the bar as that sequence, get it working and had been kind of banging our head against the wall in that scene because it just wasn't working. Finally, we're like, all right, we're going to put that to the side. Let's figure out what happens when John Harper and Myrtle meet in person for the first time. And literally in like two hours, the song uh, Myrtle's Lament, why do you haunt me? Why do you haunt me? Just kind of hmm. pour it out mm-hmm. on us. Yeah. Justin's um, like, what if it sounded like this and played me some music? And I, and I just went and she turns to him and she goes, <laughs> why do you haunt me? Why do you haunt me? Hold on a second. And then I just wrote the lyric and sent it to him. And it was like, the songs happen with the exception of Wild Man. Yes. Really fast. 
And we spent most of the year working on the book. And I will say, I actually, so I was, I've seen most of your developmental steps. I saw that 2018 reading. I saw you last summer at TheaterWorks Silicon Valley. And then uh, you were at the NAMPT Festival in 2019. And like your vision has been crystal clear from the first moment. I saw your work, but it is amazing to have watched you slowly refine. You know, mm. now to me, these characters and their motivations are crystal clear. That's you so you get it and you're terrified for them, mm. you know, actually all of them at different points. And I think, I think it's pretty amazing that this story came together in your heads and the work has now been letting us see it. That's great. Mm. People have asked questions along the way and it's helped, mm-hmm. you know, fill it in holes. And people have asked questions that we've been like, nope, not that. Mm. Or like, yes, oh my God, why didn't I see that before? And a lot of it has been like, you guys, it's in your head, but it's not on the page. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we know the answer. We have yeah. to let everybody else like, know. So Kat actually being like, will you make me a golden ball happened in Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, and it tied up so much stuff. And we'd been like, oh, of course he asks him for it like yeah. for a long time, but it wasn't in the show. Oh, know? yeah. I think you may have answered this, but one of the questions I always like to ask, which is, is was, are there moments that sort of were like these aha moments where something just all of a sudden, you know, maybe you didn't have a character in and then you put this in or something? Ron, for me. I remember that. I remember writing Gone People and being like, Lucas comes home with Ron, who's a police officer, who's Myrtle's boyfriend. Mm. And I was like, ooh, do I want to do that? And I was like, yep. (laughs) And I think even just the inception of the piece in general was uh, the question of what is he doing at the bottom of the pond? And she's like, uh all right, he's this guy, he was probably lynched, and that's why he's in a pond. And at the beginning stages of this, um, Annie and John didn't actually know each other. It was just two separate occurrences. And I was like, when she told me that, I was like, I think Annie and John were in a relationship, and that's why they ended up getting got. Getting Um, got. And uh, yeah, I was very early, it was like, he was a blacksmith, that's why they called him Iron John. (laughs) He was black man. He was lynched. Oh my God, what the hell? And then, yeah, Annie Barnes is a real person. She's a real unsolved murder um, that happened in Bruton, Alabama, um, near a body of water known as Murder Creek. Like, there was just like a lot of stuff. Was she also a. a, But we changed her entirely. And she, like, she was not an Irish immigrant. She was not like, but um, just one day, I don't remember why. I just remember being like, I think Annie's an Irish girl. Mm. Maybe because I had been completely obsessed with the folk song Shula Rune <laughs> all year. Like it was following me around. I couldn't get rid of it. Mm. And maybe I just wanted her to sing it. I had um, this vision of you writing being like, should be Shula Rune. And like, no, we, yeah, like, you're like, you golem yourself until yeah. it comes out in your musical. Yeah, yeah it was kind of like that. A little <laughs> bit. It was a little bit like that. A little bit. That. And I, um, like way before we even started working on it, and when I was like, Iron Dawn was like a twinkle in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. I was walking around one day and I was like in the middle of the land is the town of good in the middle of like that was the first lyric and then it sort of sat on a shelf for a while and I was like I don't know who says that you know mm. but um certainly having a chorus helped mm. sure and and Hunter's mom who's Hunter's mom do we ever know it has gone through various iterations right now we are settling on I don't know what we're settling on I think Dead mom is where we ended up. She's not in the picture. Um, And so um, I feel like Hunter needs a mom. Exactly. (laughs) Hunter loves Myrtle. Yes. That is the thing I've never really managed to get in the show that Mm. I feel like he really loves Myrtle and wants her to be his mom. Well, Mm. in that scene, I sort of get that. Like, he's kind of pumped about this whole Ron and Myrtle thing, you know, whereas Lucas is a little like, I got to find my dad. And that's part of um, 
what comes up when Hunter and Ron are talking um, about him wanting to drop out of school because um, it's brought up that it's going to be his mom's birthday soon. Or are they going to do anything? And Ron doesn't want to talk about it. And yeah. And uh, they really need to talk about it. And yeah. it's a thing that's not being talked about. But yeah, yeah originally I was like, Ron's wife left him. Mm. So he's got this whole issue with like manhood and like, but um, it made more sense to have mm -hmm. her have passed away and have Ron like really have this be in his bonnet about like, I got to start over. I got to make this new life, you know? And what with just like, I am, I personally feel so full of thought and emotion just in every time I get to experience Iron John. Is there one thread that like you would love audiences to walk away with into their lives out of the theater? This quote that I think is something biblical-esque and I can't ever remember what it's from, but it's if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. And I read that several years ago. And that for me has mm. always been underneath Iron John, that mm. like it's the things that we don't own mm. and that we push down and say, well, that wasn't me or that 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 happened over there or it's too painful to talk about or, I, you know, I won't own it. That will come back and bite you in the ass. Yes. So it's like it's that, that. Um, not addressing the thing rather than keeping it down actually gives it power yeah, and sure. so um that whole idea that to deal with things that might be problematic or painful or hard you must actually address them head on and you can't push them away yes. and you can't say that has nothing to do with me yeah. that's not me that's right we're all connected we're all in a big soup together you know but it's about your personal life and it's also about your societal life yeah it's 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 i mean it's really uh, it resonates on so many different levels mm. because it is also as a as a country, as a society, as a species. Mm. You know, we we see we see this time and time again, and that's sort of what this hits on is the the also the sort of recycling of of history mm. because of this, and yeah. that you see the same stories repeated over and over. And what is started out as a warning at the top of the show that um, what you bury in the dirt will take root and grow. Is <sighs> our hope is that by the end of the show, it becomes so put good things down yeah good things too can grow up <laughs> mm -hmm. and, yeah i noted that lyric and then i was also struck when um annie barnes says something to iron john about this the sunflowers being pulled from the earth by the mm. sun i like yeah. that i like that imagery that's it's mm. and again that's that's a part of the atmosphere you know I, I think what we're sort of saying is period piece is more like you know there's the 1915 period but then there's the atmosphere of present day and mm. that atmosphere is is gutturally connected to mm the earth and the past and the story. Yeah, that mm. took a while to like emerge and then we sort of noticed it. <laughs> well, and I, I think from the get-go, we knew there were these people, there was a pond um, yeah. and there was a clearing by the pond and that has just always been what Iron John is and that environment has informed everything as we've been building the story. Yeah, and there's something too about like the way nature kind of wins mm. over everything in the end that like um, there's a lyric in Wild Things Grow about like uh, Ivy. moss that eats the forest floor coming up to your front door it moves so slow you might not know but wild things grow wild things grow like that it's like history and progress like it might feel really slow but like life wants to win and it'll keep going and like you know the, the Iron John's house or like these old buildings get covered with nature you know moves so and, slow you might not know yeah but but wild things grow wild things grow and like uh that's always like the breath of hope and of freedom in this show is always that imagery of like the forest doing whatever it wants and growing more and more and mm. like, you know, 
<laughs> playing the piano if you some if you're someone who plays the piano dance if you're someone who dances like mm. tell the truth tell your story myrtle says to julie um it might be good to tell somebody yeah about it which is another like or say something to somebody say something to somebody which is another like core thing and then she finally does and my thought is like that she she does tell lucas what happened to her which saves her you know and um part of myrtle's torture is that she's not really talking about what happened with her ex with, right. not, not believing him or maybe believing him or the ways in which she could mm. have helped and didn't or sold him out and did, like or mm. whatever it was you right know? And how haunted she is, you know, mm. and she doesn't know that Ron's the guy, but you know, I think the body sometimes. But also, you know, how do you know. not? Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. You know, you know. Yeah. I have a question about it's sort of related to atmosphere that I was burning question in terms of this is a sort of a technical thing, but what is the sound of the show? Because we just heard it with a piano, but mm -hmm. I, I just envision from an orchestrational level, you you, you have other thoughts, or yes. or maybe you've experimented with them um, already. Oh, what was the name of that super cool thing? that Andrea told us about a water... The water phone. Water phone um, is this really cool instrument that makes all manner of spooky, eerie, creepy sounds that 100% <laughs> we want as part of the instrumentation. But like, is there a lot of guitar? Um, but yes, I think the, the band for this is a band, essentially. Um, we'll have a fiddle, for sure, um, some lead guitar, rhythm guitar, and a bassist, and a piano and percussion. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of a good, good. Plus the anvil. Yes. Plus the anvil. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to say my, one of my favorite things in emailing about the show has been the, has been bring your own anvil. Bring your own <laughs> anvil. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a heavy. I didn't <laughs> know it was a thing. I did not know it was an instrument until Jasmine introduced me to it. When you say you're bringing anvil, I thought it was one of those big massive, ones from the cartoons yeah. no. with head too yeah. little. Like we, that you drop on like yeah, yeah, wild yeah. coyote. Yeah. I was like, wow, they bring that around. There it is. I love it. It also makes me laugh though because it's like John Harper out at the forge, like hammering, like sounds like this. <laughs> <laughs> but I buy it. Yeah, I do too. I let. I... So, uh, is there anything about the show that I mean? This is your opportunity. Is there anything else you feel like people need to know? And where can they find out more information about the show, about you, all that sort of stuff? Well, what do people need to know about the show? We want someone to do it. I was going to say, <laughs> yes. what's, your, what, what's, your, what's your ideal next step? What to are you looking for? It really needs it, to be on its feet. Yeah, and we've, we've had the privilege of doing a lot of developmental workshops on it with um, great actors at music stands, and I think we now want to see it away from music stands again. Um, it, the, so much of the like, but wait, what's happening is is just not a question when you see the behavior, like mm. when you see the thing actually happening, things that you thought were confusing or not. Mm. And um, the other day I was like, if I never hear another stage direction, like yes. I'll be a happy Stage person. directions. Yes. But I also now having pain. seen it with dance and with movement, it's like, I just want to see people standing mm -hmm. up and running around yeah. and like climbing things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a there's an Instagram account called Iron John Musical. There is. That's... Um, there is a SoundCloud, which has all of the demos, um, which is under my SoundCloud. I think I'm j.graywood. Um, um, my website is rebeccahart.net and it has all Iron Dawn related stuff and also my band stuff and whatever else you want to know. <laughs> Everything you got. And any special thanks before we let you go? To Mark for joining us yeah. um, pretty last minute on this. He jumped in, did an amazing job with it. Um, and to Nant in general. Yeah. And to everyone who has been championing this show from the get-go yes. from NYU. Everyone who's ever sang it or played yes. it. A yes. lot of people have sung it. Um, 
Well, it's a great show. It stood out for me from at, at the NAMM Festival. Thanks. And Thank I you. actually told Sierra, I said, oh, I got to learn more about this show. So cool. I'm, I'm glad we got Thank to spend this a was really fun. couple yeah. hours with you guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are great storytellers in this form, too, just so Thank you know. You. I was like, going to say, I like stage directions yeah. when we do it this way. <laughs> it was really great. It was, it was, um, you, you have a good way of explaining your show, and that is important. As mm, I know great. that's not what you want in the end product as you guys up there. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, but maybe this a, is the show. It's an important uh, thing because to get there, you know, you have mm. to be able to to explain your show, and you mm. guys do a really good job at it. So I will Thank also you. shout out Ken Savage, yes. who directed uh, the Silicon Valley reading and asked, like, these very perfect questions in a very mm. perfect way that made all the rewrites to Act 2 happen, which... Um, I think are causing you to say mm. that you see a, an evolution in the show. So. And also to Lexi and the O'Neill for giving us a little bit of time 100%. right before NAMPS to really mm -hmm. implement all of those changes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, and thank you both so much for sharing all of your work with us. It was beautiful. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Talking when nobody listens to you What's the point telling the truth When they hear what they want to Pictures already been drawn Same old on and on Been hearing your story since long ago I still don't know what is a lamb you can feel when it's gone? Can I lean on what ain't there to lean on? Why would I try? Don't they all say? I came along and you went away. I built you a temple inside my last name. You never came. Gone people can't remember Never knew. 
For more information about One Foot Productions, you can visit onefootprod.com. And for more information about the National Alliance for Musical Theater, you can go to www.namt.org.